Um, great. Well, let's, Ollie, let's start with you. You've, you and Grant, um, some of you have met Grant, have been coming to the church for a few months now. I've really set up a cocaine anonymous group and the meeting in the church on a uh, Wednesday evening to help those recovering from drug addiction and alcoholism. Um, but tell us about your own story. You've been an addict and alcoholic yourself. Um, going back a number of years now, um, what was it that first made you start uh, uh, taking drugs and drinking? Uh, yeah, so I've been <clears throat> clean and sober now for like 13 years. But 13, well, so I started beginning at sort of the age of 12. I was really bullied at school. And, you know, I always remember like this emptiness inside, this hole, uh, this feeling of loneliness. I never had any friends because I was bullied. Didn't really have a relationship with my dad. My dad was an alcoholic. And, um... You know, from I remember just stealing a bottle of beer from like a friend's house, and I remember at 12 years old, it gave me that feeling of like it filled that emptiness, it filled that loneliness. And as I drank and you know stole it from people's houses, like my friends' houses, um, people wanted to be friends with me. Like we would drink together, like in the park, stuff like that. And also, like I started drinking with my dad at 13 years old. And I never really had a relationship with him. So for me, like, alcohol was sort of the answer to my problems. It gave me friends. It took away that feeling inside. It gave me a relationship with my dad. Um, and then, you know, as I got to, like, sort of 14 years old, I remember meeting some people in the park, a group of friends, and, like, started smoking weed with them. And, you know, that was the same. It filled that emptiness inside, it gave me some friends, you know, all I wanted was friends because I was so lonely. Mm-hmm. So it, like, and it, it helped me like fit in, it gave me like a purpose, like these people wanted to be friends with me. And then, you know, as sort of got older, 15, started taking ecstasy and that was the same thing, you know, until I got to my 20s and then I was using crack cocaine. And that was sort of, you know, it was all done to fix the way I felt inside. And because it, you know, it gave me friends, people to be with, people to hang out with. <laughs> Did you ever at that stage think that you would one day become addicted to, to it? Yeah, so I thought, like, I never thought that I'd become addicted. I thought, you know, I'd always be able to keep this under control. Um, I used to look at my dad and think, you know, you're an alcoholic, you're a waste of space, you never provided for us as a family. And, you know, I thought I'm never going to end up like you. Mm-hmm. So... I was determined that I'd never let this get hold of me. You know, I'd never become an addict or an alcoholic. But so yeah, there's no like. I thought that I'd always be able to control it. And one day, you know, as I got older, I thought well, I have a family, so I'll probably stop then. Mm. Um, so yeah. So what was the point when you realised actually this is out of control? You can't control it anymore. You have become addicted. Was there a particular moment you can remember? Yeah. So about. I suppose from a young age, because I started drinking so young, I thought that maybe I had a problem. And I remember at the age of 15 thinking, why can't I stop drinking? And well, I've never shared this before, but I rang Childline at 15 years old and said to them, I can't stop drinking, like, I don't know what's wrong with me. And they told me to stop mucking around and uh, put the phone down. And you know, it was then that I sort of knew that something wasn't quite right. And then at the age of 18, like my drinking escalated, I was buying eight cans a night, I was drinking that every single night, 
Um, every time I tried to stop, I just couldn't. You know, I'd go like one night and then I'd sort of, as soon as I put that first drink in, there'd be this, uh, you know, this craving for more and more and I'd have to drink till, you know, blackout. Um, every time I stopped, you know, there'd just be that thought of, oh, I need to have a drink tonight. Like, it never seemed to go. And then at the age of sort of my 20s, I got, uh, you know, I think when I was around 21, that's when it really escalated. Because uh, then I really started using crack cocaine sort of every single weekend. Um, I'd be using it on a Friday, Saturday and Sunday night. I'd be drinking sort of 10 cans of beer in the middle of the week. Uh, and then sort of taking, I started abusing prescription drugs, taking Valium to try and sort of help me sleep, uh, to get rid of that, you know, the deep, because I'd be shaking, needing alcohol, so I'd try and detox myself. So I think it was really at the age of 23 that I knew, like, this was completely out of control. Mm. Like, mm. there was no way that I was going to... Uh, and what did you try and do at that point? Was a, how did you try and find a solution to it? So at 23... Um, you know, I tried lots of... I think, what was that the next question? I'm jumping ahead. <laughs> <laughs> um, what was the question? Um, when you realised you had become addicted, mm. what did you try and do about it? So I tried lots of different things to sort of try and get sober and try and stop drinking. Um, so I'd, you know, go and see counsellors, go and see, like, psychologists, drug, you know, drug workers. I would... I remember they gave me tablets because they said, oh, these will stop you drinking. Like, when you drink, they're going to make you ill. So I just stopped taking them because I thought I want to drink. Um, then they give you tablets to take away the craving. So I tried things like that, and then, like, in my mind, I thought, well, if I get another girlfriend, like, then that will help me. That will solve it because I'll be in a relationship. So I'd do things like, you know, I'd buy a new car thinking that was going to solve the situation. I think, right, I'm going to book a holiday and then I'll have that to look forward to, then I won't want to drink. Um, so I just try like lots of different things. I think I bought a wardrobe of clothes like every um, about three times a year because that was going to solve my problems. But you know, nothing ever worked and nothing ever did solve it. So, what did you think at that stage about the possibility of going into to rehab? Was that something you had thought seriously about? Yeah, so rehab. I think having tried everything to get sober, rehab was like a good idea. So, you know, my mum said, she said, you know, I'll help you. And she, she helped get me into this rehab. And, you know, I really wanted to go. I was really scared. I was fearful. So I thought, this is my last chance. If this doesn't work, then yeah. there's nothing left to try because I've tried it all. And in all of that, um, where was God for you? Did, um, did he feature at all? So where, do I, so where do I think God was? Or? Yeah. Do, were you calling out to God at that stage, or was, uh, how did you feel about the situation so think, you were in? And hmm. Did he have any role in your life at all at that stage? So I knew God when I was 12 years old, when I went to Sunday school, or like 11 years old. Went to Sunday school, I remember making like a commitment, like, yeah, I want to follow Jesus. But I was bullied at school, so I thought, well... You know, God's not real. He can't be real or he wouldn't be letting me get bullied at school. And I remember particularly this one day getting punched on the side of the head. They said, you'll get the rest when you come here in the morning. So I ran home from school. I got the Bible that the church had given me and ripped it up. And I said to my mum, I'm done with God. Like, Jesus is not real and I don't want to know God. Mm -hmm. So that was my thought of God. 
So from, my, from 12 years old, I, I turned away. You know, I didn't want nothing to do with it. And um, at 23, I remember my mum saying, oh, well, can I pray for you? I thought, well, you can do, do what you want, but he's not going to help. Mm-hmm. You know, nothing's going to help. So I think then I just didn't believe that there was a God or there definitely wasn't a God that could help me. But now, looking back, I can see at 12 years old, you know, when I turned away from God, he never turned away from me. You know, he was with me for all those darkest days of, you know, smoking crack in the back of the car. My mum picking me up off, you know, off the front door because I'd passed out. God was always there and never left my side. We'll come back to the rest of your story shortly. Let's uh, turn to, to you, Christopher. Thanks for that, Ollie. Um, so you're not an alcoholic, not an addict, haven't been, um, but you have, for your life, has been affected by those um, uh, with addiction alcoholism. Um, can you tell us a bit about your, your, your story as well, then, Christopher? Thank you. Yeah, Neil. Um, yes, so um, my story is I um, grew up with alcoholism in my life because my dad and my elder sister um, she's 11 years older than me or was um, both were alcoholics and um, yeah I was, I was saying to, to Neil beforehand in a way it's, it's hard because life experience it's hard to pick out exactly what that meant because I think I'm still I'm picking what the effect it's, it's had on me has been but for my dad um, it was quite complicated because on the outside, you know, he was a successful lawyer. He ran the solicitor's firm in our town. Um, you know, he went on through God's grace, really, to be able to do some real, you know, work with death row prisoners abroad. And so on this one hand, I had this real admiration for him. But on the other, like, personally, he was just an absent, you know, emotional, emotionally absent figure in my life. Um, so it's the, and it's the kind of thing, you know, anything important like a birthday or a wedding or a funeral, anything that you'd want support there, he just couldn't, couldn't be there. He'd get drunk or he'd... Um, he was basically like having a teenager for a dad, but very young, you know, <laughs> at their worst. And um, I think the thing with alcoholism is it's like, it's like a different... Um, it's like they're not there, but something is animating them that is the very worst of who they are. And um, you obviously, as a child, you just you know want want that support. So with my dad, I kind of came to expect that people can't really be trusted or you know couldn't be counted on. Um, and so it became quite you know well, I don't need him, and you know self self reliant um, in that way. But it would, you know, be looking out for bottles he might have drunk or, you know, you'd open the door and he might have passed out drunk before meeting a client. So mum was having to, you know, send them away or because he, he worked from home um, or had the offices at our house. So that that was my dad. Um, you know, and on, on the other hand, he was, you know, very funny and... But on the other, he'd ask, you know, how are you doing? And then walk out of the rooms without, you know, getting an answer. And so it was just, you didn't know what you'd get um, with him. But I mean, never physically abused or anything like that. But it was just, yeah, there wasn't a, a sort of a rock that you you'd might hope for in, in a family. But And then with my sister, again, quite complicated because... 
she had um, bipolar, so that was quite hard to figure out. Was it the um, alcohol? Was it the, the mental illness? But again, on, on the one hand, really talented. You know, she lived in Peru for 11 years, helping indigenous people and um, you know with human rights issues. But then on the other, just completely aging of chaos. Like for our, you know, our family, and it'd be, would she be calling up, you know, in hospital or the police called or, you know, one call to say, oh, I've just broken up a, uh, a fight with machete-wielding neighbours in, in Peru, you know, because she was a force, a true force to be reckoned with. And, um, you know, I say was because, sadly, she didn't find um, recovery and her sort of journey ended in 2019 where she did take her own life. So, you know, it's, yeah, sometimes it's not... Things don't go how you plan, you know, with, with, with this, and it is, you know, it is, um, it's a deadly disease, and and I think when you're growing up, you forget that it is a disease because it feels very personal, you know, with with what's going on, and it's like a disease relationship, and so because you're part of the relationship, you think either I'm causing it or I can do something to stop it. And so it's kind of this cycle of, I can't stop it. And, you know, will she get better, won't she? Or will he drink again? And so it's kind of like a merry-go-round. It's described in Al-Anon as you get on and you're, you know, it's very hard to get off, but you're waiting for that either disaster or relief. And, yeah, it's just not very lasting and it's very dependent on how they are. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So when you were younger, you could obviously see the problems in, mm. in them. To what extent did you feel you needed help as well? Um. Yeah. Um, I was in complete denial. <laughs> so I, I, didn't, um, I didn't think it had affected me at all. And, and I think, again, probably because outwardly, you know, I had a good job and was able to do you know, function, functioning, I just didn't realise how hardened my heart had been because you just have to protect yourself. You're around that kind of emotional whirlwind all the time. And it was only meeting my husband, who's now my third person, uh, you know, that qualifies me for Al-Anon. He was already um, sober and had been in recovery for a couple of years before I met him, uh, my current husband. But... Um, he, he was just like, you, you will probably find Al-Anon for me because even though I'm sober, some of my behaviours might still, you know, be reminiscent or be unhealthy. And again, we're in a relationship, so you'll feel the effects. And I was like, oh, I'll give it a go. And then arrived, and obviously <laughs> any one of them, you know, would, would qualify me for Al-Anon. Um, and so it's a very gradual process to realise oh, I've not had a committed relationship in, until I met him because I'd just run away and, you know, I, I couldn't let people get very close to me or be very vulnerable um, because it didn't feel safe. But I didn't, that was just my normal. Um, and I think you have a very high tolerance for difficult people or, like, difficult mm. situations, and you don't realise that's not normal. Mm. <laughs> So tell us a bit about Al-Anon. So what, mm. um, what was it set up for? How is it different from AA 
or, or CA that uh, Ollie's hmm. involved with. So um, Al-Anon is different because, um, well, it's about you, the, the person who's a relative or a friend, and it might be... Um, it might be someone really close, like your child or your partner who has the addiction. But Al-Anon is about um, how you find serenity and recover from the effects um, of, of alcoholism for me, but addiction in others. And it's that slow journey of realizing this is a spiritual disease in a way, and it's a spiritual solution. Um, you know, it's phrases God or a higher power. Um, for people that have never been exposed to God, um, you know, to restore all that damage. Um, but and the thing I liked about its very gentle program, it's um, it follows the twelve steps, but it doesn't give advice because Alanon's normally expert advice givers for <laughs> other people, you know, because they're so intent on trying to fix problems and solve things. Um, but it's based on how can I change um, my attitudes to either have the courage to take a decision um, that might mean, you know, something you might think like leaving someone or staying with a person or in a situation, but with far more serenity. And so it kind of puts the focus on you rather than the obsession of the relative or friend. But yeah, yeah, yeah. that's... Going on. So, what sort of people come to Al-Anon, and what sort of struggles do they do they bring with them? Um, so, it's a real real mix of people. Um, any, and I think that's what I realise. It's it's such a common problem, um, and it's one that everyone feels quite isolated coming in and thinking that no one will have understood, or that they're a freak, or that it's somehow their fault. But um, so common, and so. Practically anyone could walk in um, completely different backgrounds, um, but the common thread is they've all really, you know, been affected. They're all very sad. It's a, it's a real sadness, I think, um, addiction, because it's obviously someone you really, really love, someone you're trying to help, but the help, if anything, does more harm than good often um, until you find the, the program. And um, their common thread is, is the relief, I think, of meeting people in the same boat, in the same struggle, um, even though we might have completely different stories on the outwardly, whether it's a child, you know, child, as I said, or someone struggling with their husband, and some people have left, some haven't, some all in different stages, or, or like me, don't have anyone actively drinking anymore um, because, yeah, that, that's... My dad's now got, um, he's got Parkinson's, so he, phys- he physically can't drink anymore. But, um, yeah, so, I, yeah, the effects are still kind of being unpicked. Yeah, thank you. Well, thank you both for sharing very personal things here. I'm going to call you back up later on, but uh, for now, um, I'll let you uh, take a seat. I'm just going to share a couple of things, and we're going to sing again. Psalm 88 says this, Lord... You are the God who saves me. Day and night I cry out to you. May my prayer come before you. Turn your ear to my cry. I'm overwhelmed with troubles. My life draws near to death. I'm counted among those who go down to the pit. 
I'm like one without strength. I'm set apart with the dead, by the slain who lie in the grave, whom you remember no more, who are cut off from your care. You have put me in the lowest pit, in the darkest depths. Your wrath lies heavily on me. You have overwhelmed me with all your waves. You've taken from me my closest friends and have made me repulsive to them. I'm confined and cannot escape. My eyes are dim with grief. It's pretty depressing language, quite dark language, but those feelings will be ones that many can relate to, that sense of being overwhelmed with troubles, of waves that just keep coming, one after another, thinking you no longer have the strength to, to carry on, there's nothing left in the tank. Feeling alone and cut off that nobody loves you, nobody understands you, nobody cares for you. Maybe feeling a sense of shame or guilt. Feeling angry towards God that he is responsible for abandoning you. Feeling like you're imprisoned, not able to escape. Feeling full of grief. Well, as we will see shortly, God is there when we call out to him. He does have compassion for us. He wants to show us his his kindness. He wants to offer us his forgiveness. He wants to shine his light into the darkness of our lives. He wants to fill us with the love of Christ. He is the God who has the power to save us. We're going to hear more of that power um, in a little while, but uh, before we do that, we're going to sing again. We're going to sing of the, the wonderful compassion of Christ and the fact that we all need it, but we have a God that is powerful to save. Father God, we praise you that Jesus did conquer the grave. He did pull us out of the pit, out of the darkness. He set our feet on a solid rock. We praise you for that. Amen. Well, we've looked at what life is like for an addict or somebody living with an addict or alcoholic. Um, we're going to look now at how we can find freedom and hope in Christ. I'm going to invite um, Ollie and Christabel back up again uh, to the front. So I'll let's start with you again. Um, I think we left the story, skeptical about rehab, thinking God doesn't care, um, turning it back on him. What eventually made you go into rehab? What was the, the turning point for yeah, you? The story weren't looking good, was it? Yeah, it wasn't good looking good, <laughs> but um, it's looking upwards now. We're heading upwards. <laughs> so what was it? What did I... What eventually made you, you go into rehab? So, yeah, the last days of my drinking at 23, it was, you know, crack cocaine at the weekends, 13 cans of strong cider a day, trying to detox. I went into hospital about three times, had a detox in the hospital where they detoxed me off of the alcohol. Uh, my mum done, like, two or three detoxes. Have I gone off? I think it's still going. Um, 
yeah, my mum detoxed me herself off of the alcohol, like at home. Um, but each time, like, it didn't work. I didn't want to drink, but I ended up drinking again. And my last detox in hospital, they sort of said if I didn't stop drinking, then I think they looked at my liver. My liver was all right. It was just a bit fatty. Um, they said that it would scar. And I'd probably be lucky if I lived, like, a couple of years because of the amount I was drinking. At the time, I'd just done a course of steroids because I thought, you know, I'll go to the gym and do steroids because that'll get, you know, that'll help. So I'm in hospital, like my blood pressure's through the roof, and I've been doing steroids and, and all these drugs and drinking. Um, yeah, so I remember just getting, I, was, I remember just caught saying to my mum, crying next to us, and I want to die. Like, I've had enough of this life. I've had enough of living in this, you know, addiction, waking up every day. You know, I'd wake up in the morning with a glass and pour a glass of cider. And I'd be trying to get it down my throat, but I would be heaving because my stomach and just, you know, I was going to be graphic, but bringing the, actually bringing it up into the pint glass and re-drinking it just to take away those shakes. And I, you know, that was what my life was like. And I just wanted to die. I didn't work. Nothing like that. So, you know, that's what brought me in to going to rehab. Mm-hmm. And you're in rehab, you do the 12-step program. Um, how did that? How did that help you? Because first of all, I got into rehab and left because I got in there, and they were te- they were going on about God, about God of your, you know, God of your understanding. I thought I know who God is, and you're not going to trick me into believing in any God. I left and came back to Long Crendon, and my mum just said, "Look, please go back there. You know what's so bad? Just forget the God part. Just go back there and finish your." Um, you know, I was just like halfway through a detox. I was still on the tablet. She's like, just go and finish that. I thought, well, I'll go back and I'll prove you wrong. Or, you know, I'll do the detox, but there's no way God's going to help me. You know, he's not real and it's not going to work. But I learned about this 12-step program in Alcoholics Anonymous. And it was all about admitting you were powerless over alcohol, which, you know, I could do that. And I knew that I'd, I could never drink again. And I knew that I had no power to sort of get myself clean and sober. And they started saying that, you know, God could do that and just to believe in a God of my understanding. So I thought, oh, I just don't understand what they're on about. But anyway, I got on my knees one day after going through these steps and I gave my life to God. I didn't really know what I was doing, but I saw how God was working in other people's lives. And I thought, well, if he can help them get them, you know, like some of them were a year sober. My mind was blown. I thought, a year sober. I thought, well, I want their God to help me. So I got on my knees and I just said, God, you know, I give my life to you and please help me. And, you know, we went through the 12 steps and it helped me look at my past to see what, you know, had happened in the past, the resentments I had against my dad, how I blamed him for my alcoholism. Um, And, you know, eventually, you know, I got to this place where God removed the desire to want to drink and want to take drugs. You know, it was completely gone. It was just removed. Um, and there was no flashing lights, anything like that. I didn't really know that God was there. I just kept saying to everyone, so when's, when am I going to feel it? But, you, you know, and I... Mm. And what was the process from there? So was that, so did that lead to immediate um, recovery or was it a bit of a journey you went on from there? Yeah, so a week before leaving rehab, my auntie and brother turned up to say that my dad had died from alcoholism. He'd been found in his uh, bungalow where he lived. 
And I remember then, you know, I was distraught. I don't cry much, but I cried then. And, you know, I had all these plans to go and sort of make up with my dad because the last conversations I had with him were before I went into rehab and I, I said to him on the phone, I wish you were dead. I hate you, you know. That, that, that was my feelings towards him. And in rehab, I learned, you know, my part in that and I was going to make amends with him. Um, but yeah, a week before coming out, he died. But, you know, I, I was able to come and see him in like the morgue and I made amends to him there and said that I was sorry. And I believe that, you know, it, that relationship was healed then. I was able to come home and spend a night at home and I remember just getting on my knees at the end of my bed in the house that we lived in in Long Crendon and, you know, just crying, saying, God, please help me. And it was at that moment I knew that God was real. I knew that it, it was the God of the church, you know, Jesus. I didn't accept Jesus at that point, but I knew that God was going to keep me safe. I knew that he was never going to let me drink again, that I didn't have to drink again. And it would have been a time like that, my dad dying, you know, in a, that I would have just turned to drink and drugs for the answer, but this time I didn't. And, you know, that's when I knew that, um, you know, I was going to be all right. But I still struggled for like four years in my first recovery because I knew God was there, but I didn't know how to get close to him. Mm-hmm. So what changed? How did you draw close to God? What was the, the difference there? And so I got like, to a place in recovery of being four years clean and sober. And I remember sitting in the square in Long Crendon in my van thinking, I want to die again. You know, I knew that drink and drugs was... I, I thought, well, I can't turn back to that. So what else have I got? God doesn't, you know, I know he's real, but he just doesn't seem to be there. Like, he's not, I was wrapped up in fear and uh, feeling really lonely. And I just didn't know where to turn or what to do. Um, so, you know, having got to that point, someone mentioned about coming to church. So I'd actually been to church a couple of times in that four years. Each time I come, I thought... I'm not going to be a Christian. I don't want to be like one of them. Like, they looks really boring. I think you were preaching a couple of the times. Um, <laughs> but then I, you know, after getting into this place of desperation once again, I came to church and, and the, one of the pastors, it was at a different church, said, I believe God is in your life, but what you're missing is that, you know, God is in your life, but what you're missing is your, that relationship with Jesus. And as soon as he said that, it was like just a click of the fingers. Everything made sense. My whole life made sense. And I knew what I needed to do. And I wanted to build on that relationship with Jesus. So, you know, I started coming here. And, and, and yeah, that was when I found fulfillment. It was the fulfillment that, you know, of Jesus. And that's why I'm so passionate about, you know, addicts and alcoholics finding, ultimately finding Jesus. And how are you now trying to help them find Jesus and find hope in him? What are you doing to that? So, yeah, you do, like, you know, take part in Cocaine's Anonymous, um, and that's just reaching out to people and taking them through a 12-step program, like the 12-step program I went through. Um, and, you know, obviously, they have a, they, you can have a God of your understanding. So, you know, I, I let them have a God of their understanding because that's what I did, and I just believed that it was a God. But obviously they, you know, we've had a couple, you know, my friend Grant, he, he went by Michelle and he said, I can, but he was the same as me, four years clean and sober in a place where he's thinking, I just want to die. 
because he knew God was there, but he didn't have a clue who God was. He never knew Jesus. He'd never even been to church. So when, you know, we were sort of meeting up with him, myself and Jeff, telling him about Jesus, his whole life's changing because he finally knows, you know, where complete freedom is, and that's through Jesus. So uh, I think, you know, that's where I'm trying to help these addicts and alcoholics, that they may know of God, um, and then if they get to a place where they're struggling, then, you know, I'm there to point them yeah, to the person who's going to give them freedom. Great. Wonderful. Thank you, Ollie. Uh, Christabel, let's just turn to, to you again. Um, so for you, uh, you said that um, you didn't see the problem you had um, earlier on, but you did eventually go to Al-Anon. Uh, the Al-Anon 12-step program is a little bit different, isn't it, from the, the CA1, um, in the sense of uh, you're looking at how you, as somebody living with somebody with um, alcoholism and addiction, can, can grow and can change. How did it help you doing that program in terms of what you learnt about yourself? Um. <clears throat> I think uh, for me, it kind of, it just opened up choices that I hadn't even known were there. So um, I guess the first thing that happened that w- had a big impact on me was realizing it sounds so obvious now, but you know, I, I didn't have to pick up the call the phone to my sister. I didn't have to have these like, hours long, you know, trying to make her things better. And it's called um, Detached with Love in the Al-Anon program, where you just start to extract yourself and live your own life. And um, that was just revolutionary. I was like, what? I can, I can leave? Like, I don't have to have a really toxic relationship at this time because, um, you know, my, my sister's really unwell. And it, it's like trying to reach someone in a big block of ice where the ice is getting thicker each year and you can make them out. But you can't access them and so yeah it's just being able to see things um differently and to that it's a very mysterious program 12-step program because god is infused so powerfully in it um and for me i'd it's kind of like a kind of i'd found jesus before the 12 steps um kind of kicking and fighting but then had an amazing you know transformative experience of realizing he is the living presence and you know that changed everything for me because i'd always believed in god but not jesus but then when your sister commits suicide that's quite (laughs) you know it changes things and i you know i um was full of you know absolute certainties and I suppose I'm still obviously processing so I could think very differently but um, it was almost like trying to control through prayer I I did so many prayers you know she'd get better she'd recover as my mum but for some reason you know this life is the hard part and there are tragedies um, that just happen and so for me, and I remember, I've told Helen this, but, you know, I remember getting back into prayer after losing my sister, which was hard, and I was like, right, well, I'll start praying about the cat safety, because I, that's, I really love the cat, and then we lost three cats in a year and a half, and I was like, what kind of sick world is this? <laughs> I was like, how dare you take my cat, <laughs> you know, and so um, that, I'm still processing, like, what is and, and and so the program, the Al-Anon program, really helped me by not being 
so explicit in some ways by allowing, you know, God allowing the mystery to to be like there will be tragedy and without knowing how you'll find a route through it through the 12 step process which is about giving over your person or your life or your different you know tragedies to God and knowing you can't solve them for yourself and then looking at yourself how you can change what you can and um, I love the serenity prayer which is God grant me serenity to accept things I cannot change, courage to change the things I can, and the wisdom to know the difference. And you know, it's that it's such a mystery what we can change, what we can't. And so yeah, it's, the twelve steps has actually really helped me find Jesus again in a quiet way, you know, um, but in a more expansive way that can hold the fact that prayers can go unanswered or. You know, they're still suffering. Yeah. 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 Yeah, Thank you. I'm sure there's people here who would like to help um, those struggling with addiction. How could you suggest they, we as a church, can support you in your work and um, and, uh, and addicts in their work? Um, Well, even an event like tonight, I've I've never had one of these. (laughs) You know, I've not been to a church that has had the curiosity to ask because it is quite a well it's a very private issue um addiction for people who suffering it and living with it um it's kind of and so just hearing stories and a night like this is huge to just make it a normal conversation and you've also done a huge thing in, in offering out the rooms to have both the meetings that i and ollie have because that practical, that one practical thing has meant we've now got meetings of people coming to the church on Tuesdays and Wednesdays every evenings and having, you know, what they've said are really powerful experiences. So it's continuing to, you know, be so open and welcoming and, um, yeah, seeing where it goes from there, I suppose. <laughs> but, yeah, thank yeah. you for all what you've done so far. No, it's just great to be seeing what God is doing and following his lead, really. Um, in terms of preparing ourselves as a church to support the work, what are the things maybe we should be aware of in terms of having our eyes open to challenging uh, situations and supporting addicts? Um, that's this... Uh, I, it's hard to say because um, people will look very different and be in diff- really different stories. You know, you'd know the really, you know, how, housing issues, all sorts that might might be having a very chaotic life, or someone might look completely fine but be really struggling. And so I think just the simple kindnesses that come from being at church, asking how, how are you really doing and how and just. <coughs> That space to be a, a, a non-judgmental listening ear if someone does feel safe enough to, to share about um, experiences that are happening, but even having the leaflets you do about um, the meetings are really helpful because, like family members, there's not much... I mean, I, I have found that it's the meetings and the, the programs um, are the first way in to really transform the issues and 
um, there's a real desire to just fix it, but there's nothing just fit, you know, there's no quick, quick fix solution. So having the meetings being, um, having people aware of that, and then there are practical things like babysitting or, you know, some advice about legal things or housing and any of the varied gifts people might have in the church that they might help out practically with um, would be wonderful. But I, I suppose that would become clear as I think people are just more aware yeah. of it being a really common issue. Yeah, thank you. Anything you want to add to that, Ollie, in terms of ways we can go forward? I think it's just like like people having compassion and um, being non-judgmental to like addicts and people like that that are coming into the church. I think people need to understand that a lot of these people are coming from walks of life that not many of us maybe in uh, Long Crendon have had to have lived. You know, we're talking about people that have been, you know, raped, um, abused as children, sexually, mentally, you know, women that have been pregnant and carried on using drugs and, you know, had babies taken off of them. Uh, we're talking about people that have maybe had to prostitute themselves to feed their addiction. So we're talking about people that, you know, have had to have lived these lives and it's about just showing them that compassion and that and not being judgmental and showing them that they're loved because they're loved by Jesus and you know they need to feel that they're loved by us um, you know I know when I first come into the church uh, I didn't think that I'd be accepted you know because of the life I'd lived and I asked Neil to come around my house and read the bible with me and I was just blown away because there was Neil sat with me reading this bible and I just thought, like, what's in it for him? Like, then there was nothing. He just wanted to sit down with me and read the Bible. But just, to, just an act like that meant so much. And it was so nice when I was like invited back to people's houses and you know for lunch and stuff like that because it just showed me that they really did accept me and they really did care. And you know, I think ultimately the, the most important thing we can be doing is praying for these people. So you know, praying and inviting them for meals. You know, if you're going to take a meal then to someone's house, then, you know, you know, take enough for yourself as well. Sit down and have a meal with them. Because all these things, they mean a lot to people that are coming in. Maybe they're coming in and they haven't got family or they've never experienced a love like this before. And, you know, my friend said to me the other day, I've, since coming to church, he's never experienced quite, you know, a welcome and a love like it before. So I think, you know, we've got that right in this church and yeah, I th I, these people just a lot of the time they just want to read the Bible. So you can read the Bible. Give me a number. Thank you both of you for sharing. That's been been wonderful, really helpful. Thank you. Well, it's good to um, hear that that story of hope, isn't it? Um, of how Christ can change. Uh, the most broken of lives. Um, I'd just like to share a few verses from Psalm 103 and a few comments on that before we turn to prayer and praise um, to finish. Psalm 103 says this, Praise the Lord my soul, all my inmost being, praise his holy name. Praise the Lord my soul and forget not all his benefits, who forgives all your sins and heals all your diseases, who redeems your life from the pit and crowns you 
with love and compassion, who satisfies your desires with good things, so that your youth is renewed like the eagles. Wonderful words. The psalmist is full of praise to God, um, tells himself his soul to praise God, to remember all his, his benefits, the way God has changed his life. Um, I guess the first thing to comment on here is that the 12-step program uh, teaches that the alcoholic first needs to accept they have a problem and that they are powerless to change it themselves. And the question is, if they, they are powerless, then who can change them? Well, the program talks about a, a higher power, and different people will have a different view on who that is. But um, as Ollie said, he found out that, that higher power was God himself, the triune God, Father, Son, and Spirit. And he was able to have a relationship with God through Jesus. So what does this passage tell us that God has done for us in terms of saving us? Well, very briefly, if you have that verse behind me on the screen, have a look. God forgives. There's no longer any need for the, uh, the person here to feel guilt about what he's done. However bad it is, God's forgiveness covers it all. And God is willing to forgive us because Jesus lived the life we should have lived and he died the death we deserved. And so when we put our trust in him, there is that exchange that takes place. We receive his righteousness. He takes our sin. And when we're forgiven, a weight is lifted from us and light shines into our lives. That forgiveness is the first way to a new life. Then he heals. As we've heard, alcoholism, drug addiction are a disease, both physical and spiritual. And as with any other disease, you don't just hope it goes away, you seek help. You seek healing. And God is the power to heal all our diseases, physical, mental and spiritual. He redeems your life from the pit. We heard from Psalm 88 what life in the pit is like, what life for the addict is like. It's a place of spiritual darkness that you can't escape from. But God can redeem us from that. That word redeem means rescue. But rescue, that incurs a cost. The ransom price for God to have us released was the life of his son. And whether we are an addict or not, we all need rescuing from our sin, from our desire to be in control of our own lives without any reference or any need of God. He crowns you with love and compassion. God doesn't just forgive us and redeem us. He, he shows us just how precious we are to him by giving us a crown. A crown not made of earthly things like gold and silver, but studded with jewels of love and compassion. Not a crown given to us as a reward, but given to us as a free gift out of his love for us. And finally, he satisfies our desires with good things. One of the reasons alcoholics, addicts, continue to take drink and drugs is that they think it will give them the satisfaction that they need. Well, God doesn't just heal us from that empty way of life. He gives us a new way of life with new desires for good things. He gives us a desire to become like Jesus. And as he does say, we're told our youth is renewed like the eagles. We receive a new spiritual strength and vitality. In short, it's a transformation that God is able to do in us 
And the way he achieves that is through Jesus Christ. We finish with these words from Ephesians 2 to summarize what God has done through Jesus. But because of his great love for us, God, who is rich in mercy, made us alive with Christ even when we were dead in transgressions. It is by grace you have been saved. And God raised us up with Christ and seated us with him in the heavenly realms in Christ Jesus in order that in the coming ages he might show the incomparable riches of his grace expressed in his kindness to us in Christ Jesus.